Legos are fantastic. And uh, we have a lot of them, and even our kids have some. <laughs> All right. And they come with uh, little instructions, uh, little engineering blueprints, uh, brilliant engineering. In 2013, Lego unveiled the largest Lego model at that time, a life-size replica of the Lego Star Wars X-Wing Starfighter. Totally sweet. Over 5.3 million bricks. 11 feet tall, 43 feet long, a 44-foot wingspan. It weighs over 45,000 pounds, including bricks and steel infrastructure. That's right. Do you think a bunch of neighborhood kids got together one day, started building with Legos, and ended up with the X-Wing? I don't think so. It was carefully designed and constructed It took 32 Lego master builders over 17,000 hours to build. Lego master builders are the elite few who get paid to play with Legos. Uh, There are only 40 in the world. They design, build, remove, install, and repair amazing Lego models. Saints, did God design and construct our redemption? God is sovereign omnipotent and omniscient. He always was and always will be. He created all things. He possesses absolute supremacy and efficacy in and over all things. He is all-powerful and He is all-knowing. He knows the end from the beginning. So did He design and construct our redemption? When it comes to redemption, God is the master builder with an eternal blueprint. Scripture reveals that before creating anything, our sovereign God designed our redemption. The cross wasn't an afterthought. It wasn't plan B. It wasn't, oops, that didn't go as I thought it would. I better do something to salvage all this. An honest reading of Scripture shows that the cross of Christ was an event designed by God in eternity to accomplish the redemption of His chosen people. Peter was crystal clear at Pentecost. Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. It's been said that the covenant of redemption is essentially God's blueprint for our salvation and that without it, there would be no election, no incarnation of the Son, no cross, no resurrection, and no promise of heaven. This is why David Van Drunen and R. Scott Clark labeled God's covenant of redemption one of the most important and widely taught aspects of Reformed covenant theology and a cornerstone of its soteriology, soteriology being the study of of our salvation. No one gets saved apart from God's covenant of redemption. I suspect many of you haven't ever heard of the covenant of redemption. But I want you to hang tough and to apply what you've learned in this series thus far. And a fair warning at the beginning, this is a deeply theological sermon. Uh, And in order to benefit from it, you need to think carefully and think biblically. These, These are beautiful, but deep waters. If you dive deep down, there are treasures of gold to be found but you may feel pressure as you dive. You you may want to swim right back to the surface, to those surface doctrines that are more familiar to you, but you have to fight the urge and you have to dive deeper. You will find treasure. 
I'll add that the covenant of redemption may not seem immediately practical, uh, but, but when it's rightly understood and cherished, it strengthens faith in Christ, fuels worship, gives comfort and assurance to believers, and increases gratitude for God's redemption. Dive into the depths of the gospel. Don't forget the big three now. God's sovereign plan, God's sovereign covenants, and God's sovereign grace. And today just expands on last week. God has a good plan. God is working out his good plan. Nothing can thwart God's good plan. Now, from here on in the series, covenant theology is going to take more shape. Hopefully, it becomes more beautiful to you, more compelling to you. So, let's begin by asking the question, what is a covenant? What is a covenant? In the coming weeks, the answer will become fuller here, but however, right now, I I just want to get us started. I want to define covenant a bit at the outset. Now, our family... Uh, has used the children's catechism in our family worship. And it asks the question, what is a covenant? And it answers a solemn bond between two or more persons. Pretty simple. A solemn bond between two or more persons. A covenant is serious. It's, it's formal and is an oath-bound commitment that binds people together. Michael Brown's and Zach Keel's book, Sacred Bond, was very helpful to me in in, uh, crafting this sermon. They define covenant as a solemn agreement with oaths and or promises which imply certain sanctions or legality. So marriage is a covenant. It's formal, it's legal, it's relational. A marriage covenant is commitment, promise, oath, law, and certainly love, and certainly there are wonderful blessings to this covenant of marriage. So for our purposes today, a covenant is a solemn bond between two or more persons. It involves multiple persons, an agreement of some sort, conditions to be followed, and promised rewards. Covenant appears hundreds of times in Scripture. It's a huge theme. Can't miss it. It's right there. And it also comes with synonyms or related words like oath, promise, law, commandment, testimony, judgment, statute, words, and signs. Now, there are three big picture covenants that we need to address in order to understand the other covenants. And so, the three big picture covenants are this, the covenant of redemption, the covenant of works, and the covenant of grace. Redemption works grace. Three different covenants, and they are very, very important. Every other covenant that we will look at falls under these three big picture covenants. Now, covenants are between God and man, okay? But this first one, the covenant of redemption, is unique. It's a covenant between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. It's an intra-Trinitarian covenant, Now, another forewarning, predestination and election are closely related to God's covenant of redemption, but we're not going to deal with them right now, okay? Now, you will be tempted uh, to to maybe want to explore those a lot right now, but, but I want you to fight the urge to explore predestination and election right now. We're going to get there in the future of the series, but for now, our focus has to be on God's covenant of redemption. What is God's sovereign covenant of redemption? 
Well, you won't find the label in Scripture, okay? Now, does that mean it's unbiblical? Well, the word Trinity is not in Scripture either, so we need some term to express this massive biblical truth. Terms save time, and they promote theological precision and clarity and unity. Covenant of redemption is a perfectly good label, but we're really after the biblical truth the label signifies. Does that make sense? So, so let's not make a big deal about the label. We're after what the label signifies. What is the covenant of redemption? Well, here are a few definitions that, that I hope help fill out what the covenant of redemption is. Dr. Michael Horton states it simply. The covenant of redemption is an eternal pact between the persons of the Trinity. The Father elects a people in the Son as their mediator to be brought to saving faith through the Spirit. Pastors Michael Brown and Zach Keel state it this way, a little longer. The covenant of redemption is a pact between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit with the purpose of redeeming God's elect. The Father gave to the Son those whom He chose to save and required him to accomplish their salvation through his obedient life and atoning death as the second Adam. He also promised the son a reward on the completion of his work. The son accepted the father's gift, agreed to the conditions of this covenant, and submitted himself to the father's will. The Holy Spirit promised to apply the benefits earned by the son to the elect and unite them with the son forever." So you have multiple persons, conditions, and agreement, and then rewards. Summary, God designed redemption in eternity. Louis Burkhoff stated it like this. The Father is the originator, the Son is the executor, and the Holy Spirit the applier. This can only be the result of a voluntary agreement among the persons of the Trinity so that their internal relations assume the form of a covenant of life. In other words, the Father designs redemption, the Son accomplishes redemption, and the Holy Spirit applies redemption to God's people. All right, the brilliant 17th century Puritan John Owen wrote on the covenant of redemption, and his organization of the theme is, is very helpful. Brown and Keel summarize Owen's thoughts as follows. Five things. Number one, the, promise, or, or the father as promiser and the son as undertaker voluntarily agreed together in council to achieve a common purpose, namely the glory of God and the salvation of the elect. Number two, the Father prescribed conditions for this covenant, which consisted of the Son assuming human nature, fulfilling the demands of the law through His obedience, and suffering the just judgment of God for the elect in order to satisfy God's justice on their behalf. Number three, the Father promised the Son that He would support Him, and that if the Son accomplished the work given to Him, He would achieve salvation and glorification for the elect. The Father confirmed these promises with an oath. Number four, the Son voluntarily accepted the conditions and assumed the work as surety of the covenant. And number five, the Father approved and accepted the performance of the Son who likewise laid claim to the promises made in the covenant. Now, here is what all those definitions are getting at. 
They're communicating the Father, the Son, and the Spirit entered into a solemn bond to redeem a people for God's glory. The Trinity designed redemption before the foundation of the world. The elements of a covenant are right there. There are three persons involved. Conditions are set that need to be followed. Agreement is made. And wonderful rewards are promised upon fulfillment of the conditions. Now, you don't have to call that a covenant. Okay? But it does have the elements of a covenant. And so, why don't we just call it the covenant of redemption? Seems like a fitting title. Historic creeds affirm the covenant of redemption. Our beloved Heidelberg Catechism or the Westminster Confession of Faith or the Savoy uh, Declaration of Faith, among others, affirm it. Christians through the ages believe this doctrine. Now, here's a quick preliminary but persuasive point. Do you know that before the foundation of the world, there was a book And in that book were the names of every single one of God's chosen people who would be redeemed by Christ. Did you know that? It's true. Revelation 13, 8. And all who dwell on earth will worship it, everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who was slain. Revelation 17, 8, the beast that you saw was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction and the dwellers on earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast because it was and is not and is to come. When was the book of life written? Before the foundation of the world. Redemption was sealed in the book. Before the foundation of the world, God designed redemption. And there is no, without the covenant of works, nobody gets saved. Everyone perishes. Now, this is mysterious. We can't climb into the eternal counsel of God and figure out why. You you just can't do that. We can only marvel at the truth that God's redemptive plan includes redeeming us. The only why God reveals to us in His Word is for His own glory and our eternal joy and life in Him. That's it. Beyond that, we're just speculating. Is God's sovereign covenant of redemption in the Bible? Is this just fancy-pants theology invented by bearded theologians? Anything better to do than to speculate? Well, you need to discern that. If this is not in Scripture, reject it immediately. If it is in Scripture, you must prize it and cherish it and delight in it with all your heart. Let's begin with Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8, and Hebrews 10, 5 through 11. You really have to think carefully, my friends. David wrote Psalm 40, but strikingly, Hebrews 10 attributes the, word of Psalm, the words of Psalm 40 to Jesus Christ. Hebrews 10, 5 through 10 is an exposition of the meaning of Psalm 40, verses 6 through 8. The New Testament helps us interpret the Old Testament and vice versa. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews explains Psalm 40, 6 through 8. Consequently, when Christ came into the world, he said, he said, Sacrifices and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. 
In burnt offerings and sin offerings, you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I have come to do your will, O God, as it is written of me in the scroll of the book. When he said above, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He does away with the first in order to establish the second. And by that will, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Now that's deep. You got to dig into that. You got to spend some time with that. Animal sacrifices cannot save anyone, never could. They always pointed to Christ who can and does save. Christ came to earth to do the will of his Father, which included his offering himself as the sufficient sacrifice for sin on the cross. The cross was the eternal will of God for Christ to bear. And Jesus came to bear it in obedience to his covenant with his Father. Redemption was designed. Let's keep going. Psalm 110, verses 1 through 7, and Hebrews 7, verses 17, 20, and 21. Psalm 110 is a prophecy about Jesus Christ's supremacy as Lord and King. Verse 1 speaks of Christ's reward of supremacy. And verse 2 speaks of Christ's reign and rule over all his enemies. And in verse 4, a covenant is made with an oath. The Lord has sworn... And will not change his mind, you are the priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now here, the covenant of redemption is sealed with God's oath that Christ is priest forever. And Christ agreed to mediate as the high priest for God's people before the world began. Hebrews 7 verse 17 applies the oath to Jesus Christ. Verses 20 and 21 add this. And it was not without an oath, which sounds very covenantal, for those who formerly became priests were made such without an oath. But this one was made a priest with an oath by the one who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind, you are a priest forever. Now, when was this oath sworn? Well, logically, before creation, because the high priestly and mediatorial role of Jesus includes offering himself on the cross as the spotless sacrificial lamb in the place of God's people, an event designed before the foundation of the world. Another important text to consider is the famous suffering servant which you might know from Isaiah 53. Now, you can study this on your own. We can't go real in-depth with this, but I'll highlight a few verses. In verse 10, Isaiah 53, Isaiah said something very intriguing. He said, Yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. Grief. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. God designed the suffering of the servant. The son agreed to suffer. And what was the son's reward? Verse 11, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. That's the gospel. Now, Jump back quickly to Isaiah 42. Isaiah said of the servant, 
I will give you as a covenant for the people. The servant is the covenant. Christ obeyed the Father's eternal will. He obeyed the conditions of the covenant of redemption by bearing the iniquities of His people and by His obedience to His Father's eternal will, Christ made many righteous and is satisfied. Please don't miss this, dear ones, dear saints. The redeemed people are Christ's reward. Saints, you are Christ's reward for his obedience to the covenant of redemption. He bought you with his blood to have and to hold you forever. God's Son earned the reward of his exaltation as Savior and Lord, and he earned the reward of a people for himself. A people who glorify and enjoy Him forever. This was God's definite plan before the foundation of the world. Now Luke 22, verse 29. Jesus told His disciples this, And I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom. Jesus promised his disciples' entrance into his kingdom to eat and drink with him and to reign with him forever. He assigned it. Now, this is very interesting. The word assigned in verse 29 is the Greek word diatithemai, which can mean to make a covenant. Using covenantal language, Jesus said his father granted to or bestowed upon him a kingdom which was the reward for his covenant obedience and faithfulness. A kingdom is his. He earned it. Well, the Apostle Paul, or Apostle John rather, had so much to say about the covenant of redemption. You just have to read the book of John. Uh, that takes a while to do, but this doctrine is right there for you in the book of John. Jesus said, I'll highlight a few things. Jesus said in John 4.34, listen closely, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. The Father sent the Son into the world with specific work to complete. He was to redeem God's people. John 5.30 and John 5.36 confirm this. Jesus also made it absolutely clear that the Father gave him specific people to redeem, and he would redeem all of them without exception. Jesus would not fail to redeem any that God gave him to redeem. Listen very carefully to Jesus in John 6, 37 through 40. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Was he indecisive about that? I don't think so. There's so much in those verses that we need to unpack, but I've already preached on this several years ago. You can look up my sermon, May of 2014. You can find it online. But notice in these verses several things. All that the Father gives to Jesus do actually come to him in faith. 
Jesus came down from heaven to do his Father's will, which assumes the Father had an eternal will for him to do, covenant conditions, if you will. It is the Father's eternal will for Jesus to lose none of the people he gave to redeem. It is God's eternal will for Jesus to raise up every single person the Father gave him. John 10, 27 through 30 also talks about the Father giving a people to the Son and that those people are eternally secure in the Father's hand. John 10, 18 is helpful. Jesus said about his own life, no one takes it from me, but I lay it down of my own accord. I have authority to lay it down and I have authority to take it up again. This charge I have received from my Father. Now that's important. This charge I have received from my Father. Make sure you understand Jesus here. The Father commanded the Son to die on a cross and raise from the dead. When the Son did both, He was obeying the covenant conditions He received from his father before the foundation of the world. Or, as Acts 2.23 says, according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. John 12, 49 and 50 affirm that the father commanded the son. Jesus said, for I have not spoken on my own authority, but the father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. John 14, 31 adds, but I do as the Father has commanded me. John 15, 10 advances this thought. Jesus told his disciples, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. There is no question whatsoever that the Father gave the Son commands to obey, and in His obedience, redemption was accomplished for God's chosen people. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit had an agreement before creation. John 17, 1 through 5, big text. We had it read this morning. Thank you, Jeff. The cross by which Christ redeems every single one of the people the Father gave Him is the means by which the Son glorifies the Father. Jesus said in verse 4 that he had accomplished the work that the Father gave him to do, and then he prayed in reference to the cross for the Father to glorify him. The cross was his glorification because he was earning the redeemed. He was in the process of redeeming. This is his glory. And, And John mentioned many times the Father giving the Son a people to redeem, which the Son actually redeems. When Jesus said, It is finished. It is finished. He meant he fulfilled the Father's foreordained plan for him and redemption was achieved for the elect. Was there an eternal solemn bond between the Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem all of God's people from their sin? Absolutely. The cross was the plan all along. The cross of Jesus Christ is the apex of history which magnifies the power and grace and love of God in the Son. And to think God the Spirit applies redemption to all the elect for the glory of God alone and their everlasting joy and life in Christ. 
Romans 5, 12 through 19 is important to mention. Adam was the federal representative of humanity. He represented all of us at that moment in the garden. Jesus is the federal representative of all of God's chosen people. Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Study this on your own, but Christ is clearly the federal representative of God's chosen people. His obedience has merited their salvation. He did what Adam failed to do and what Adam could never do. Jesus Christ is the superior second Adam. His obedience merited our salvation, and those God gave to Jesus are redeemed in Jesus. Paul said in verse 19, For as by the one man's disobedience, talking about Adam, the many were made sinners, that's everybody, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is those made righteous in Jesus Christ, his chosen people, those believers, those who trust in him. All of God's chosen people are made righteous because you have to understand this or else you'll have just a total warped view of your own salvation. It's not about your works. It's not about what you do. You can't earn God's favor. Here is why you would have God's favor. All of God's chosen people are made righteous because their covenantal representative, Jesus Christ, fulfilled the covenant of redemption on their behalf. And by faith, you have all the benefits of that covenant for you. They received all the benefits of redemption by grace through faith. Check out 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. You can write that down. Check, it, check out that this week maybe. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 and 23. Legos. Legos. Little engineering blueprints. Lego master builders who design and construct amazing models that blow our minds. And they're Legos. Perhaps that's a picture of Ephesians 1, 3 through 14. Verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Not that we were holy and blameless before him, but that we should be. He chose us to be. Saints, our holiness and our blamelessness before God was planned before the foundation of the world. Verse 5 says that God predestined us, be careful, guard against it, it's coming, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Now, whatever your thoughts on predestination, it is biblical, you've got to do something with it because it's in the Bible. But whatever your thoughts on predestination are, recognize that before creation, our adoption was designed by God, and God appointed Christ to achieve our adoption according to the purpose of his will, not according to who you would be or are, according to the purpose of his will. You did nothing in your redemption, nothing. You added nothing except your misery and sin. That is the wondrous covenant of redemption in unmistakable terms. Paul linked our redemption to the mystery of God's will and added in verses 9 and 10, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. It was his plan. Saints, saints, if you get nothing else, get this, that our redemption through Christ was God's plan before the beginning of the world. Ephesians 3, 8 through 11. 
In talking about the unsearchable riches of Christ, Paul mentioned the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God. The plan, the plan, the plan, the plan, the plan of redemption. It was planned, it was designed, it was constructed by God alone. Paul added in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord. Our redemption was God's plan. It was God's eternal purpose. And the Trinity covenanted to make it so. What about Philippians 2, 6 through 11? We know this text. Paul talked about the incarnation of Jesus Christ, how God's son took the form of a slave and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Obedient, that's key. The son was obedient to his father to the point of being pierced on a brutal, bloody Roman cross. And what was his reward? What what, what did he get? Paul said, verses 9 and 10, this is so beautiful. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Amen. A solemn bond between the persons of the Trinity was made. There was an eternal agreement and the precious son, the precious son obeyed every single condition of the covenant unto his greatest reward, supremacy in and over everything and a redeemed people to the glory of his father. How about one last glorious illustration of God's covenant of redemption? Highlight this one in your Bible. You might want to turn to this, 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. You know what? Even highlighted in the Pew Bible. Just, just highlight it. 2 Timothy 1, 8 and 9. Listen to the striking words of Paul. Therefore, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who saved us. And called us to a holy calling, not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Could Paul have been any clearer? Before the ages began, God purposed our redemption in Christ. Saints, our redemption is the eternal purpose and grace of God. Now, you don't have to call this a covenant, but the elements of a covenant are there nonetheless, a solemn bond between Father, Son, and Spirit to redeem all God's chosen people. It was agreed upon before the ages began. Now, what difference does this make? And I need to wrap up quickly. Dear brothers and sisters, I'm talking to you saints, those of you who are united to Jesus Christ by faith. Will this doctrine not comfort and assure you when your faith is weak? When you sin against God and make a royal mess of things, when you don't feel like God loves you, you can turn to this and say, before the foundation of the world, he's loved me. I am his. I belong to him. God's covenant of redemption turned tears of sorrow into tears of gratitude. 
God's covenant of redemption secures God's love for you. God's love for you isn't based on your performance. If he has chosen you and he has given you the son and he has given you redemption and he has given you the Holy Spirit, he will not take his love back. It is for you to enjoy every day of your life. It's not based on our performance. I would have lost it long ago. It's based on his son's performance. Can I get an amen? Come on now. Don't fall asleep on me as I go along. All right. It's based on his son's performance and your union with his son by faith. It's yours. It's yours. The covenant of redemption works to increase our awe in the power and sovereignty of God, which excites our worship. How humbling and awe-inspiring this doctrine is for those adopted by God through faith. This will comfort and assure you But you have to believe it. Your ability to keep holding on to God is not very assuring. You are so fickle and so am I. We'll change. But your assurance is Christ's ability to keep hold of you. And that is assuring. That is comforting. That gives joy. That gives peace when things get hard. Jesus kept the covenant. Therefore, you are secure in Christ. If you really believe that, what happens? You love and adore Jesus as your faithful covenant keeper. You love him because when you were unfaithful, he was faithful for you. Your adoption is secure because Christ kept the covenant of redemption. We love him for this. This is why Christ is precious. And then the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit He has graciously and powerfully applied to us every single benefit of redemption. It's ours, which includes our perseverance. You will make it because he has you. Don't ever believe the lie that deep theology is inapplicable. Lie, lie. Deep theology strengthens our faith. I think a lot of American Christians have skin-deep joy because their theology is skin-deep. Their view of God is skin-deep. Paper-thin joy because they have no idea what the Bible says. Deep theology strengthens our faith. It gives us courage. It gives us comfort. It gives us confidence in Christ. How badly we have broken God's law. How faithfully Christ has fulfilled God's law. Please get this. By his merits alone, we are redeemed. Let us love the Lord who bought us. Father, we thank you for this clear word from your text. We looked at a bunch of texts, God. We can sometimes get confused with everything that we look at. So God, would you just gel this one point in all of our minds that you are the sovereign God who has planned our redemption before the foundation of the world and Christ Jesus was faithful to obey every single condition that you gave him, Father. He is our faithful covenant keeper. He is our faithful high priest. He is our faithful Lord and master and savior. And it is because he has done it all that we can count ourselves adopted children of God. It is because our older brother is beautiful and awesome and he fights for us and he wins for us every single time. 
God, he has secured our redemption, and we are weak and frail people who sin often, who take our eyes off of the the prize of Christ often. So I pray that your Holy Spirit would do a mighty work of grace in us this morning, that you would point our eyes and our gaze to Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith. God, thank you for designing our redemption. Father, thank you for designing our redemption. Son, thank you for accomplishing our redemption. And Spirit, thank you for applying our redemption to us. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.